going to ask you to be open to getting to know the human being to your left and your right. The human being that you've been fighting for, the human being that has been fighting for you, the human beings who form the most powerful movement in the history of electoral politics. If you've ever wondered where your next meal might come from, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever been harassed or catcalled as you walk down the street, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever fallen ill and self-medicated or ignored it because the bill might hurt more than the ill, please squeeze your hand. If you've lost a job, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever been assaulted, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever sat in a Planned Parenthood or a free clinic waiting alone, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever been pulled over by a police officer and prayed to God that you'd make it home, please squeeze your hand. If you believe that there is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come, that the long arc of the universe always bends towards justice, please squeeze a hand. If you are ready to work every day as a creator of your life, to do everything in your power to build a political revolution that will shake the very foundation of this empire, please squeeze a hand. Now raise them. Now repeat after me, power. Transformation and miracles. We want it. We need it. We got to have it. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. In 1971, a corporate lawyer named Lewis F. Powell Jr. changed the course of American history forever with a memo. You see, in the decades before, America had become more equal at a faster rate than perhaps at any other time in our country's short history. In 1925, A. Philip Randolph founded the first African-American labor union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and in their act of labor solidarity, planted the seeds for the civil rights movement. In 1935, Congress passed the Wagner Act, and by establishing the National Labor Relations Board, created important protections for working people. In 1935, the Social Security Act was signed. The program quickly became the most important anti-poverty plan in America. FDR's New Deal programs were followed by President Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society programs, like Medicare and Medicaid, which were established in the mid-1960s. In 1964, Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, which outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And by the early 1970s, the women's liberation movement was in the crest of its iconic second wave. The economic outlook was increasingly progressive as well. The top marginal tax rate in 1960 was 91%. In less aspiring capitalist panic, that applied to income over the equivalent of about 1.5 million in today's dollars. Union membership was climbing, and the gap between CEO pay and worker pay was about 20 to one, as compared to 300 to one, which it is today. So, in 1971, when Lewis Powell sat down to write his famous memo, he had a lot to be worried about. See, Powell was a conservative lawyer 
who was about to accept President Nixon's nomination to join the Supreme Court. Powell and his class allies were concerned about the direction America was heading in. It was becoming more equal, both socially and economically. Ralph Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed, had sparked a consumer advocacy revolution. And Powell, who sat on the board of tobacco company, Philip Morris, wasn't wild about the idea of consumers getting more rights. So what to do? Well, on August 23rd, Powell drafted a memorandum that would provide the blueprint for conservatives to wrest control back from the multiracial, working-class coalitions that had finally begun to bend the arc of American history toward justice. In the eight-page memo, Powell argued that the American economic system was under broad attack. The most disquieting voices, he said, were from perfectly respectable elements of society. From the college campus, the pulpit, the media, the intellectual and literary journals, the arts and sciences, and from politicians. Setting the rich against the poor, he wrote, is the cheapest and most dangerous kind of politics. In order to quash this movement, he argued, conservatives would have to mount a multi-pronged attack. Powell wrote that national television networks should be monitored to make sure big business wasn't subject to too much criticism and complaints should be promptly reported to the FCC. Moreover, advertising dollars should be used not just to support specific products, but to promote the, quote, system, leading perhaps to the proliferation of children's cereal brands and cigarette ads that emphasize a bizarre notion of choice and freedom. To protect big business against the people, the business community would have to organize via the National Chamber of Commerce, in much the same way workers had gained power through the National Labor Relations Board. To re-educate students, he advised the business community to establish a staff of highly qualified scholars, to publish frequently, and to influence opinion. Textbooks should be evaluated and rewritten, right-thinking tomes independently funded if necessary, and a close relationship should be developed with business schools around the country. It goes without saying that he advised the business community to lobby politicians directly and heavily. And perhaps most significantly, he set out a plan to take over the courts. Powell cautioned that lawsuits should be cultivated carefully so that they yielded only business-friendly results. And legal theories that reflected the interests of the business community should be actively developed and disseminated. Did it work? Well, nearly 50 years later, the mainstream media is owned by a small handful of billionaires. Conservatives have cultivated crisis after fake crisis on college campuses. The Federalist Society has created a pipeline of right-wing judges that have taken over the federal judiciary. Unions have been gutted by anti-labor legislation embraced by those same conservative justices. And conservative ideologies with little to no basis in scholarship are accepted as scholastic truths. Writing this ship is going to take even more organization and planning than the Powell memo sparked. Daunting, I know. But lucky for us, the leading contender for the Democratic nomination is the one and only organizer-in-chief, Bernie Sanders. 
This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics that are driving the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. This week, I spoke to Jeffrey Sachs, a renowned economist and intellectual, about how our system of radical inequality is the result of a methodical, decades-long political project, not some historical inevitability. Sachs is a professor at Columbia, as well as an advisor to the United Nations. He recently endorsed Bernie as, quote, a progressive for all Americans across the political spectrum. Then, for a look behind the scenes of this surging campaign, I spoke to Ari Ravenhoft, the campaign's deputy campaign manager, about how something like last fall's Queens rally comes about, hint, lots and lots of sweating the details, why Bernie rallies are such unique affairs, and becoming an Instagram influencer. So stick around. I am so excited and honored to be joined today by Jeffrey Sachs, a renowned economist and one of the foremost public thinkers, I'd say, that we have in this country. So thank you so much for coming by. Well, I am thrilled to be with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, just last week, um, you released your Bernie Sanders endorsement video. And in it, you talk about some themes that are common in your work, but that we don't necessarily always hear from people who are economists. I think there's there's some people who treat this movement and the idea of a kind of a, a democratic socialist worldview as unserious. So help me to understand and help people who might be skeptical understand why you support this campaign. Bernie is the only candidate that sees it as it is and is telling it as it is, which is that we could do so much more, so much better in this country, make people's lives so much better and actually do it rather straightforwardly. Mm-hmm. And what I have found watching American politics and participating in it for a long time now, <laughs> I won't give you the number of years, is that most Americans are on side on this. So what is sometimes called a radical agenda is nothing like that when you look at what Americans really want. Mm-hmm. Americans know that the rich should pay more taxes. Americans know that the behavior of our corporations is absolutely unseemly. They're just taking, they're grabbing. Uh, They get bailed out, but they leave the bill uh, for the rest of us. And Bernie understands all of this, of course. He's been fighting on the right side all of these decades as inequality has widened and widened and widened. And it became a kind of almost a farce in our politics. You look at the 2017 tax cut. Yeah. Another giveaway, a trillion plus dollars given away to the richest people in this country. The Republicans, who are completely shameless, of course, kept it a secret till the last moment. There were no hearings, no mm. public debates. They just rammed it through because that's what the rich do with impunity, because they bought the political process. And Bernie's been on this point for years and years and years. Why are we where we are with so much inequality, with so many people suffering, with so many people unable to afford their prescription drugs, basic health care, and so forth? Not because Americans are crazy and uh, self-destructive, but because American public opinion doesn't count when politics is owned and operated by the richest people in this country and by the most powerful corporate lobbies. 
So the way we got to where we are, in short, is that our political democracy was taken away from us mm-hmm. by the powerful corporate lobbies. And this was a direct premeditated assault on our democracy that started with the Chamber of Commerce in the 1970s, started with Lewis Powell. Mm-hmm, the Powell uh, memo. I love this. Yes, who uh, wrote a memo in 1971 saying, we need to grab power for the businesses in this country. Mm-hmm. And he laid out how to do that. And one of the ways was money, corporate money. He was appointed to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon, uh, that uh, uh, glorious uh, destroyer of democracy. (laughs) And uh, when Powell got his moment, he wrote the first Supreme Court decision that said, let the companies buy our political process Mm -hmm. in the phony name of corporate free speech. And from then, money has poured into the political system. Now, Bernie's getting money from small contributors, millions and millions of small contributors. But what has ailed us Mm. is that it's been big, bundled money, dark money, secret money, political action committee money, corporate lobbying, billions and billions of dollars over recent decades. And you watch, and I have watched in detail year by year, how that has created more and more inequality, an unbelievably overpriced and unjust healthcare system, a dependency on big oil mm-hmm. because Exxon, Chevron, you name it, they have owned the political process. That's why we have mega climate change right now. And then we're told, oh, you can't really do anything about that because the oil companies control the discourse. Right. So this is what has happened. Now, I travel all over the world. I see normal places Mm. where the political system isn't owned and operated by the corporate lobbies and by the billionaires. Places like Germany or places like Sweden or the Netherlands. And they're doing quite well, thank you. They don't have this unbelievable inequality. Everybody has health care. Everybody has weeks of vacation time. And then I come home after seeing uh, this uh, firsthand what it means to have that kind of decent life. And then you read the propaganda of the Wall Street Journal or you hear on Fox News, oh, we don't want to be like them. Well, why not? (laughs) And the reason is because to be like them means that the rich actually pay their taxes Mm. and the corporations actually are regulated rather than setting the regulations. So that you made so many excellent points there. I want to backtrack a little bit because I don't think that it can be overemphasized the extent to which the kind of economic and political place that we're in today was a conscious, predetermined act, right? So I recall learning about the Powell Memo in law school and it really setting off a light bulb for me because there is this there is this disjunction between understanding that, okay, you're telling me all these, po- these policies are popular. You're telling me that people like the things that Bernie are saying. Okay, okay, I'm a little skeptical, but you're telling me the polls say that people like Medicare for no, all. And, and they show and they it like overwhelmingly, the exactly. Of course, but people are then, people come, become skeptical of the polls because they say, well, how can that be if everyone agrees, why don't we have the nice things? Isn't that amazing? Because our political representation does not work. Right. I remember when one congresswoman uh, in the heat of uh, a debate uh, about health care in front of me as I was uh, discussing 
put her face in her hands and just said, the lobbies, the lobbies, the lobbies. <laughs> it was uh, like the uh, Joseph Conrad novel, uh, the, the Darkness, the Heart of Darkness, how powerful yeah. this money is in corrupting our politics. And I am uh, old enough to have lived through uh, a lot of presidencies. I saw the turning point. The turning point came January 20th, 1981. Mm. I can tell you it's when Ronald Reagan became president because that is when they really seized the power. Bust the unions, cut the taxes for the rich, deregulate, wreck the environmental movement, and really go after this corporate agenda. And because Lewis Powell had opened up the floodgates of corporate money, it turned out that this was a decisive shift of American politics. So I study trends as a macroeconomist. Mm. If you look at inequality in our country, inequality was falling in the 1960s with President Kennedy, with Lyndon Johnson. But then the turning point came decisively in the 1980s. That's when we started to become two Americas rather than one with this massive widening, bust the unions, because that was a conscious part of the strategy. Right. Bring in the corporate money, get the Koch brothers to fund organizations all over the United States uh, to, for uh, tax cuts, deregulation, a right to work, bust the unions. It was a conscious campaign. It was not the American people demanding right. these things. Nothing like that. Right. It was a shift of politics, not a shift of attitudes of Americans. Right. We have reached the breaking point now. Americans do not want what is on offer. They've been saying election after election, we're on the wrong track. But then you look at opensecrets.org. I encourage everybody to go to that website and learn a little bit of the grim reality of our country. We have billions and billions of dollars from corporate money, corporate lobbies, the richest Americans, the bundlers that have driven what Washington does into a complete disregard of what Americans want. Yeah. That's why our country is so on edge. Yeah. And it's reached a, such a shocking crisis right now. Life expectancy in our country is falling. It's mm -hmm. declined three years in a row. I study measures of well-being. So if you get past the national income, which is reported, say, on the Wall Street Journal front page, and ask how do Americans really feel about right. things, we have declining sense of well-being, rising anxiety, very serious uh, disorders uh, of uh, uh, epidemics of opioid uh, mm. addiction, uh, rising suicides, right. and uh, <laughs> all of this because we've been on this path for so long that politics is broken because it's bought. Yeah. This is the decisive moment. Bernie has seen this. He's been saying it so clearly. He's the only one that understood it from the start, has been in the right direction, has been arguing so cogently and so knowledgeably about this. He's seen it absolutely firsthand and close up what these lobbies do to wreck the process in Washington, 
And he's got the only solution to this, uh, actually, also, because you can't just wish it away. You have to create a movement, a movement that's going to take the democracy back from these, from Wall Street, from big oil, from the healthcare industry, which is bankrupting mm-hmm. America. And that's what he's doing. So what do you say to the folks who are afraid of or skeptical of this notion of democratic socialism or social democracy, who say either it can never work here because America is just kind of fundamentally different from countries in Europe, or who say we don't want it to work here because the model that is being pointed to are countries like Venezuela? Oh, come on. (laughs) This has nothing to do with Venezuela. That is, oh, of all the stupid (laughs) lies that Donald Trump tells every day. This is is what we're going to get, right? I know, but it's so grotesque. Come on. So so what do people need to know? What We want to arm our listeners with the best defensive response to these kind of, you know, empty, vapid arguments that are going to be thrown at us when we win this primary. What Americans need to know is that... uh, the United States life expectancy now ranks 29th among the high-income countries. 29th. Listen, hear it. This is the United States of America. We are falling so far behind the leading countries. How many days of guaranteed uh, maternal leave uh, with a newborn do we have in the United States? That would be zero. How about in all the normal countries? I'm talking about Canada. I'm talking about Britain. I'm talking about Germany. I'm talking about Sweden. I'm talking about the Netherlands. I'm not talking about Venezuela. That is such a (laughs) phony, cheap shot and lie. But the normal countries that we know and they have weeks, months. Months, yeah. My, my, guarantees. One of my great Canadian six friends, six year, months to a year. Months. Exactly, right. They have guaranteed vacation time several weeks because they have a normal society where the billionaires don't own the politics. Right. There are folks out there like, um, let's say, Steven Pinker, who say, you know, I don't know why everyone's complaining. There are fewer poor people globally than there have been in the past. The overall global trends are up. There are fewer people living on less than a dollar a day or what have you. There's no more bubonic plague. You know, things are on the up and up. And folks point to the GDP and strong overall economic growth and low employment rate, unemployment rates. And they say Trump is doing great. Capitalism is doing great. How do, how do you, how would you push back against that that kind of a narrative? I would say, in a sense, Steven Pinker is a very fine linguist. (laughs) But to look at an average and misunderstand the inequality and the suffering, to ask how is it that America, uh, the richest large economy in the world, has declining life expectancy, soaring suicides, epidemics of substance uh, abuse, deaths of despair, and not be able to talk about that? But come on. Okay, his linguistics, very interesting. (laughs) But honestly, let's look at realities in this country. Let's look at the fact that the United States has the highest inequality of any high-income country in the world in this OECD club. There's a group of the uh, Democratic Rich countries were one of them, called the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. You can go online and look at the comparisons. And the United States just doesn't stack up except the most 
relative poverty of any of these countries, the least worker rights of any of these countries, uh, the most deficient healthcare coverage and the highest costs of healthcare coverage, life expectancy way behind. And then you don't say, oh, the world's so wonderful. You say, how do we solve these problems? How do we use our wealth and our know-how like we used to with Franklin Roosevelt or John F. Kennedy? How do we direct this for the common good, not just for the people at the top? That's what Bernie is pointing out. Yes, of course we can solve these problems. We are a rich country. We have this wondrous technology. But does it really have to just serve Jeff Bezos's $110 billion <laughs> bank account right now? No, it doesn't. How about if Mr. Bezos actually paid taxes? Right. How about if he gave decent wages to his workers, which Bernie helped to push right. successfully? Then you start getting somewhere. But the name of the game is not to enrich Mr. Bezos even more. We've yeah. never seen fortunes like this. They make no sense in this world when people are struggling. And then Bezos goes around demanding tax cuts by all the cities. Who wants to host our HQ2? Well, you have to give us benefits. You have to uh, promise tax cuts. So we don't want any unions and all the rest. Where does that come from? Not in a decent country. Right. And Bernie is the one saying, no, we're not going to go on like that. We are not going to be hoodwinked by Fox News and Rupert Murdoch's media empire, which just tells lies every single day when it's completely normal if your political system is not bought by the rich, that people can have decent lives without committing suicide or having yeah. these terrible epidemics or struggling to fulfill prescription drugs and so on. I see it with my own eyes because I travel to these countries. I deal with their politicians. I deal with uh, their regulators. Uh, and it's normal what Bernie's calling for. It's not radical. Yeah. What's radical is what we have here. Government of the rich, by the rich, for the rich. That's radical. Radical in the wrong way. Bernie's mainstream. How, why do you think it is that uh, so many European countries ended up on that path and ended up moving in the direction of stronger social democracies. And we got caught up, at least in the 1970s and early 80s, in this direction where we have been deluded into thinking that trickle-down economics and you know redistributing wealth up toward the wealthy was somehow going to benefit our society as a whole. Are there kind of historical reasons why we ended up here and they ended up there? And Because there are some people who would say that that divergence was kind of intrinsic and natural to our kind of national temperament. But are there other kind of factors that that led led to that divergence and that we can that give us confidence that we can overcome it? You know, it's interesting. If you were to have looked at America in the early 1960s uh, under JFK, my favorite president during my <laughs> lifetime, or uh, Lyndon Johnson in the war on poverty, you would have not have made a difference uh, between the U.S. Uh, and Europe or Canada at the time. The U.S. was a progressive society. Social democracy was a mainstream idea. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't some crazy radical ideas. Uh, the corporate uh, media say nonsense. Uh, this is what the New Deal was. Uh, this is what Truman, even Eisenhower, by the way, kept on a basic line. Uh, mm. But we had progressive legislation 
And we had Medicare introduced, uh, for example, uh, in the 1960s. We had a war on poverty. We had the ideas of how to do this. So you would not have made any sharp difference. There's nothing intrinsic about the U.S. that makes it that we have to be governed by corporate oligarchies and lobbies as opposed to normal politics and democracy. We considered ourselves kind of a democratic country. Mm. Uh, (laughs) What happened? A number of things happened. Uh, Our government blundered and cheated on Vietnam. We divided politically. We had uh, high inflation uh, in the 1970s, which undermined confidence. And uh, we had Lewis Powell on a very conscious decision of the corporate sector, we're going to seize effective power. And they did. Ronald Reagan was a turning point. And you can see it uh, even in statistics that uh, social scientists make about the swerve to the right in the U.S. The U.S. went to the right, not because of a massive change of public opinion, but because Reagan narrowly won an election. He completely used a short-term crisis of inflation to attack fundamentally the role of government. His famous line in his inaugural address in 1981 is that government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. What a horrible, wrong idea. Phony. Mm. But he was able to use that to sell deep tax cuts and an assault on the unions and an assault on environmental regulation and other kinds of regulations, even financial regulations, because he had a big savings and loan crisis, a a very big uh, financial crisis because of deregulation. What is a little hard to understand is why we didn't bounce back effectively. Unfortunately, what happened is a lot of the Democratic Party said, okay, We have to follow Reaganomics. We have to swerve to the right ourselves rather than holding the ground and saying this is not right. We're being encroached by big money and corporate interests. I watched it. I was very sad. The Democrats signed on to Wall Street, a lot of them. Uh, The corporate Democratic faction basically said we have to be the weak version of Reaganomics. What a terrible mistake that was historically because uh, when Clinton was president, he triangulated. Uh, He cut a lot of benefits. Uh, uh, He did a lot of things uh, that you look at now when you say, oh my God, that is really a right-wing agenda. That's not a progressive agenda. And so we lost time and lost the political move. George W. Bush came in, more tax cuts Uh, We know how cynical Cheney is, one of the most cynical people ever in politics uh, in the United States. And he told Bush, "Okay, now we get more tax cuts. Bush wasn't so sure. Cheney said, we won. This is what we're going to do. So they just aggressively shifted politics to the rich. The money poured in. Citizens United opened the spigot even further than Powell's uh, originally decision in Bilotti versus the First National Bank of Mm -hmm. Boston in 1978. And the money changed our politics so that we have on the surface a democracy. But in terms of how things are really working, we are a plutocracy right now. We are driven by money. 
The Republican Party completely sold out on everything. That's why you hear such nonsense day to day. They know the lies they're talking about, for example, on climate change. Every word is a lie. But they're paid by big oil. So that's how it works. The Democrats, unfortunately, got too close to Wall Street. The Democrats got too close to the huge money of uh, the big healthcare industry. That's the biggest single sector in the United States. So you have even Democrats, of course, a lot of them spouting nonsense on Medicare for all because the money that comes from the healthcare sector to the corporate, the campaign contributions in the Democratic Party, too, it's vast. Yeah. And that's why when Bernie is not only does he get it, but he knows that the only way out of this is if there's really a movement of working people, small contributions, so that nobody's bought in this process so that we can think straight and say, hmm, every other country figured this out. Don't you think the U.S. could figure this out also? I think the point about what happened with the Democrats as well is really critical because there are some people who hear, you know, leftists, you know, critique the Democratic Party or individual Democrats and they say, well, come on, these are people on our team. They're good people. They're well-meaning. And they perceive it as a kind of an interpersonal attack rather than the structural attack it is. And I think one of the key points of that kind of Powell memo was also getting the media, taking, you know, establishing a foothold in the media. And as this is a point that Ryan Grimm made when he came on the show many episodes ago, that as TV became a more primary vehicle for communicating with the masses and TV advertisements were more expensive and more expensive that the the importance of having those that corporate money became greater and greater as well so there was this feedback loop where even if you wanted felt like you wanted to ignore the money you had to, you felt like at least you had to pay attention or you had to be solicitous of it because otherwise you were never going to get your point of view across you were never going to be able to advertise and reach the people in the first instance so then if you have a democratic party who has lost a series of elections over the course of the 80s who say okay last last ditch effort, I think that we have to do is play their game. Now, I disagree with that choice. I think it was a wrong choice. But when we're saying, when we're critiquing that choice, it's not that we're saying, I think that you're evil and bad and, and all of that, is to say you there was a structural problem that needed a structural solution instead of kind of lowering yourself to the level of gameplay that was happening on the side of Republicans. And what we want is for people to recognize that there is another way and that that other way isn't the third way. <laughs> it's to have confidence and faith and that people are willing to give small dollar donations and people are willing to come out and form a movement when you offer them policies and real genuine material change that will affect their lives and make them feel like they're not just getting incrementally better, but they have something real on the line, on the line, that their lives are on the line. Exactly, exactly, exactly. It is a, a lot easier to go to a Wall Street bundler uh, and say, yeah, I need some millions than it is uh, to win the confidence of millions Millions of of small donors who each give 20 bucks, uh, 10 bucks, which is what Bernie is doing. Of course, uh, it's very attractive. Bill Clinton uh, went to Wall Street. He brought Wall Street into the Democratic Party. Robert Rubin came from an investment bank, went back to a city, and in the meantime, deregulated uh, the financial sector and ended up contributing to the blow up of uh, finance uh, that occurred in uh, 2000. 
eight. But, you know, tactically, okay, that's a, a lot of campaign funding uh, that came into the Democratic Party. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, what do you get out of it? Yeah. Uh, you just don't get what's good for the American people. Yeah, and what's the and, point of winning yeah, at a certain point? I, I, I just feel I've seen it close up, you know, even with President Obama. I, of course, I voted for him twice mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I was so uh, thrilled and uh, enthusiastic with his uh, election victory in 2008. But who came in to handle the crisis, a, a lot of bankers, a yeah. lot of, and that's why they were bailed out and they never really paid their dues and they stayed in power and now they're abusing the system again. Yeah. Uh, they got cheap credits and they're funding big oil. Yeah. And so the old system continues right now because we didn't take the lessons and we didn't take the lessons for the structural reasons that you're talking about. That is the easy approach, big bucks. It's expensive to run campaigns. Bernie's doing it the hard way. There's no question about it. But Bernie's doing it the only way that can really work. I want to ask you about the Green New Deal since you're an amazing advocate for it. Why is that such a kind of lightning rod for you? And why do you think that is such an important part of this movement? Well, unfortunately, not for great news. Uh, you look at the mega fires in California. Uh, you look at Hurricane Maria thousands of people dying in, in Puerto Rico. You look at the mm -hmm. massive flooding, the droughts. Uh, you look at the heat waves, uh, and I see it all over the world in uh, my work with the United Nations. Every place I go is in ecological, environmental, climate-related crisis right now. It's, uh, it's shocking. For 14 years at Columbia University, I led the Earth Institute with mm. hundreds of climate scientists. Just about every day, a great scientist would come up to me and say, Jeff, it's worse than we thought. It was very depressing, by yeah. the way, and very hard uh, because these are brilliant people and they're telling us something and we were watching it with our own eyes, what's happening. So the Green New Deal is not something fun. It is something necessary. We need to protect ourselves from our self-made growing disaster on this planet. By the way, the U.S. economy is losing Year in, year out, a hundred billion to climate related disasters this year, 150 billion. It's, we're seeing so many mega disasters right now, and it's going to increase till we say, come on, stop. We cannot self destruct yeah. this way. Now, what I know also, uh, having worked with engineers, not just the climate scientists, but the engineers who know how our power grid works, uh, how uh, automobiles work, and uh, tell me a lot of interesting things. We can fix this problem. The whole idea of the Green New Deal is practical solutions so that our economy and society runs on a safe energy system. Wind, solar, hydro, geothermal. We can do that, and we can do it at low cost. Again, it's propaganda saying you can't do it. Recently, the head of uh, BP, Bob Dudley, attacked Bernie and others. Oh, this Green New Deal. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding? BP. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> this is what big oil does for a living is propaganda. This guy may actually not know when he says, oh, we need all kinds of energy. He may actually believe that, but he doesn't understand. He's in the oil business. Those who are in the sunshine business, solar power, <laughs> those who are in the wind business, they know 
what we can do now because the technologies have improved so dramatically that solar is what's called at grid parity or even mm. better. In other words, it competes head on with coal or with gas. You mm. have places in the United States where gas fired electricity generation is just closing down, not because of public policy, but because solar power is cheaper. Mm. Now, Bernie, as usual, has gotten it completely right. Here's what we need to do for climate safety. And what is brilliant about the Green New Deal is that it fits perfectly with what Europe just announced. Mm. There's now a European Green Deal. I think people can go look it up online. Europe, that is the 27 countries of the European Union, have adopted an absolutely bold, clear strategy to get to climate neutrality, so-called, or zero emissions by 2050. And the U.S. and Europe should join together to get this done. And in fact, the whole world's going right. to do it. Bernie's going to lead the way to get the whole <laughs> world to do it, in fact. Once again, you have corporate propaganda. And boy, oh boy, the oil industry is a propaganda-filled industry. It tells lies relentlessly, yeah. saying it can't be done. You have the Wall Street Journal every day absolutely telling lies. Sometimes I think the morning edition is just to make me mad. <laughs> uh, then, then I realize other people are getting the same, same edition. But the truth of the matter is the Green New Deal is absolutely practical. It's going to keep Americans at work doing the right thing. It's going to save us from destruction. It fits what the rest of the world is doing and is going to have to do. It's the right thing to do. And we have to block out the propaganda and get on with the work. And what Bernie recognizes is it is like a moonshot, but a moonshot, we did it. And we'll do it with this one also. And the engineers are saying as clearly and explicitly as possible, we can do this one. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. Your enthusiasm is infectious. And I can't wait to be on this journey with you to the presidency, to, to winning and to changing the world for the better. Bernie's going to do it and we're going to be helping him. It's fantastic. <laughs> thank, thank you, Dr. Thanks. Zach. Suddenly, we have the Democratic establishment very nervous about this campaign. We got Wall Street nervous. We got the insurance companies nervous. We got the drug companies nervous. We got the fossil fuel industry nervous. We got the military industrial complex nervous. We got the prison industrial complex nervous. We got billionaires going on television crying that they're gonna have to start paying their fair share of taxes. And they're starting to think, could this really happen? Could there really be a political movement in America which brings together blacks and whites and Latinos and Asian Americans and Native Americans, gay and straight, to stand up as working class people fighting for change. We are their worst nightmare. This is their nightmare on Elm Street. So I'm joined today by Ari Rabenhoft. When did you first start working with Senator Sanders? Officially, 
February 2017. We first met in December 2016. I helped a lot in keeping him out on the road doing rallies in a lot of 2017 2018 was about issues mm -hmm. so we would go out we did we did a lot of events to defend the affordable care act against mm -hmm. donald trump's attempts to cut 30 million people off their health care and he went around the country and people don't talk about this and it's ignored but literally went around the country went to west virginia went to pennsylvania went to a whole bunch of states and rallied people against it and it was actually a very effective methodology. And he said, like, look, Bernie has always been for Medicare for all, but he's not going to stand by and let 30 million people get cut off their health care right. without going and doing something. And there were days, there were days in 2017, there was like a Wednesday once where I walked into his office and he, he was like, do you think we could do like three rallies Friday, Saturday <laughs> without any campaign apparatus or staff or this and we would pull it together and we had 1400 people in Pittsburgh with the help of a lot of people on Friday night. See, I think a lot of people, this is certainly the case for me, don't fully appreciate what goes into a rally. It just kind of feels like the principal shows up, people magically know where to be and a rally happens. But sure. talking to you and being on the campaign it's been really interesting getting to know how much work the advance team or you know the people on the ground do and how much infrastructure goes into that and i know that you have you know are heavily involved in that aspect of it too sure. can you give people a little bit of insight into well, into what makes these events successful you just have to think that when you're putting together an event there are a hundred tiny details mm. that have to be taken care of and Yes, there is a perception that an event is, oh, there's a stage and there's a microphone and the principal gets up and talks and there's a process. And depending on where you are, there's there's permits. There's everything from fencing yeah. to stage to making sure – look, the most important thing we think of at a rally, and we don't do – some campaigns, for lack of a better term, do fancier Right. Rallies were more toned down very intentionally um, because that's who our candidate is. He just wants to connect mm. with people, and that's his goal. So can you see the speaker? Can you hear the speaker? Can the cameras see it? But also can everyone in the audience mm -hmm. share in the experience? How do you create a shared experience that communicates the message of the campaign? And yeah. we have some very good people on this campaign who work very, very hard with very little, you don't see them, they're not ever going to be on your TV, but work very, very hard to make that happen. And you'd like to think presidential campaigns are about high-level policy conversations <laughs> and deep strategy. Sometimes they're just about porta-potties and fencing. <laughs> it's that, but also there does seem to be this kind of artistry to it. I mean, when I reflect on the spectacular photographs from the Queen's rally in October, right? Yes. When I think of kind of the cinematic scope of the whole thing and how the setting really amplified how kind of resurgent the atmosphere right. Which is, was Which is the goal there. of an event. The setting goal is for, uh, the goal of a good setting and a good event is to amplify the message you want without being obtrusive mm. to that message, mm. right? The message isn't where, like the venue, but the venue should amplify. Yeah, you want to wear the dress. Look, you don't want the dress to wear you. Sometimes it's hard. Like when you think about these things, like there's Queensbridge, which is like the pinnacle of rallies. Twenty six thousand people, New York City, just a beautiful scene. You know, not a cloud in the sky, great temperature. The bridge behind the New York skyline. 
And then also the crowd, just the massive crowd filling in. But just as important on this campaign is the event with 100 people in a small Iowa city of 200 people. We did an event early in the campaign, and I'm forgetting the name of the town, where it was a city of like 250 people mm. and 300 people showed up to the mm, event. I remember that. I like, remember and those that. events are just at, in an old, it was like an old community meeting mm-hmm. space. And those events are just as important as the big ones. And every event, every state is different. The way Bernie likes to think of an event is as a, as a community meeting. Mm-hmm. Our events, 80% of the time, have some musical element. And typically, you know, we have the big bands that come out, but like local musicians who are from the town who support Bernie coming out with their guitar to play. And he he very much loves that. Mm. It's something he is very, because he, he thinks these events should be fun. Um, in the summer, in New Hampshire and Iowa, we would do ice cream socials mm. where you came and in New Hampshire, Ben and Jerry at events would scoop your Ben and Jerry's ice cream. <laughs> and he likes things like that where the community is coming together at a location and there's something, the politics is about community. He wants to be in touch with people. If staff tries to prevent him from communicating directly with people, he will reject that. Yeah, I mean, when I hear you talk about it, you can you can tell that you're a creative. And so I want to ask you about another side of this creativity, which yeah. is that when you're doing all of this, you're often taking pictures and have one of the best Insta accounts. On a journey with Bernie. <laughs> Let's count the follows. You should definitely check On it out. A journey it's with Bernie. Definitely worth it. You need the follows because you have obviously access that a lot mm. of people don't have. But more importantly, I think is that you have an amazing eye. I started taking pictures. I have a book of some of my pictures here. A lot of it is to remember different setups and settings and like get a sense of. And you know, I started posting it. In June, I forget who said it to me. They're like, why aren't you have an Instagram account? And I had like an Instagram account with like 100 or 200 followers that I had posted five times to since like 2008 mm-hmm. or something. Was, whenever Instagram started. Whenever <laughs> I got an Instagram. I never used it. I was like, okay, I'll start posting a few pictures. And, and people like, look, it's not giant. It's like 7,000 or so followers. You guys can bring it up. <laughs> hear the burn. <laughs> Let's get it. Let's get it to 8,000. This whole episode is an elaborate ploy. Elaborate ploy. No, and like, but I think there are photos that like inspire, like, and just highlight memories. Like, um, here, I'll pull one out right now. This, you know, my favorite photo I've taken all campaign. I think one that is, I don't Uh, know, is the, is the Queens Bridge. This is gorgeous. Photo. So if you're if you're listening to this, it's There's a picture from the New York rally. From the New York rally. It's a I have it in black and white. And the way it worked, the stage faced the bridge and it was going over the top of the stage and over the crowd while AOC and Bernie had their arms in the air. And it, you know, it was just this amazing yeah. moment on the campaign where, you know, Bernie was back. We had had these moments and we had gone through the the medical problems and we had got to a debate that was fairly successful. And mm-hmm. then he came in at that rally to Back in Black, which people liked. <laughs> and it was a kind of cathartic moment here where, look, it was it was a pretty incredible rally to pull off. And, you know, our advance team did some remarkable work. And that was, it's one of my favorite pictures. And then there were like, this was actually oh, at the I Minnesota State Fair where we stopped by the arcade uh-huh. And Bernie shot baskets. <laughs> and he's pretty good. He's really good. I mean, at this point, we've all seen him. We've seen there was him actually this Kimmel. Great night. We've seen him. There was actually this great night on the campaign where we were in San Diego. Not the first San Diego. It was 
later in the campaign in San Diego, I think in the summer, where we had gone out and gotten ice cream. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd walked from our hotel and we were walking kind of around the block. And I think it was Brian, our campaign photographer, pointed to this like great, who's from California, pointed to this great, like, he's like, oh, there's this like fun arcade over there. Bernie was like, okay, let's go. And he like walked <laughs> into the arcade, just walked in and kind of rolled up to the skee ball machine, started throwing <laughs> skee balls. And people around are like, wait a second, is Bernie Sanders playing? And then he walked up to the basketball game and started shooting baskets. And people around were like, wait, is that Bernie Sanders playing <laughs> basketball at the arcade? And it was, he was just hanging out at the arcade playing basketball. <laughs> Did anybody challenge him? I don't think anybody challenged him. There was a certain level of excitement. It was like, you know, it's not about the challenge. It's about all of us playing together for a common purpose of scoring mm-hmm, more baskets. Mm-hmm. Not me, us. I got it. Not me, us. And getting more <laughs> tickets for the prize booth. So back to the campaign itself. Yeah. I'm curious. People, People want kind of like... A state of play. We're recording this about a week out from Iowa. Things have been shifting a lot recently, but we have benefited from some pretty good polls of late national yeah, polls. I, look, and I think people look, never let your emotions get dictated by polls mm-hmm. because polls go up, polls go down. Mm-hmm. We had a good poll today from CNN nationally. That's great. It's good. You know what? You know what we got to do? We got to knock on doors, got to make phone calls. If you can chip in 27 bucks, chip in 27 bucks. Who knows what polls are accurate? I think it feels very good right now. I think the campaign feels very good. It feels like we have momentum. And and I was talking to another staffer today who's been on a lot of campaigns, and we've been on a bunch of campaigns together. And we were talking about there's a good feeling. There's a feel in the air with these yeah. things. But that means you just have to work harder. Right. I know. Because we have we don't want people to we get have 12 days and... to the Iowa. Yeah caucuses. We can win this thing. The question I hate more than anything else that I get out there is, are you going to win? Everybody, me, you, but every single person watching and listening to this podcast, every single person in this country gets to like play a role in that decision. You are not powerless in that. Do you want to win? Then what can you do in the next 10 days to make the Iowa caucuses happen? And by the way, once Iowa's over, what do you? What can we do to make New Hampshire? What can we do to make Nevada and South Carolina? What can you do for Super Tuesday? What can you do to make sure Bernie Sanders defeats Donald Trump and he becomes the next president of the United States? Yeah. Because I woke up on January 20th. I was up in January 20th at midnight and it got January 20th. I'm like, oh my God, one year from today, Bernie Sanders will be inaugurated president of the United States. But if you do the work. Right. And, and so, that's, mm-hmm. that's why it's not, I hate the like, are you going to win? Right. Well, you know what? You to help us decide that. So, so to that end, you know, I went on Chapa Trap House a few weeks ago and talked about what we need people to do to win. And I think yep. one of the biggest pieces of advice that our organizing department passed on, which is that I know a lot of people are very excited in their home states that might not be early states to start door knocking because that feels like a way to engage really tangibly with your community. Right. But that right now, if you can go make a Bernie journey, as we're calling them, to Iowa or to an early state and if you and door knock there if you want to door knock. But if not, please do sign up to make calls and texts yes. into early states instead. Yeah. Look, do what you're comfortable with, with what you can do. A lot of people can't travel. Right. That's course. that's fine. Like, can you like take an hour in an evening and send texts? Can you make phone calls? Maybe you're too busy. Can you kick in five bucks? Like do what you can do. 
Download the burn app. Download the burn app. Like do the contact things your that you can do. And look, the best, yes, if you have the ability to get out to Iowa or New Hampshire or one of South Carolina or Nevada and knock on doors, that's very important. If you're in a super Tuesday state, it's also probably important. You start knocking on doors there. But if you can't do that, anything you can do is helpful and you shouldn't like don't feel guilty about not being able to do more. Feel great about what you can do. Certainly. I also, I want to ask you, you know, you mentioned that you, sometimes you get a feeling and that you're feeling good. I'm curious. I'm feeling good right now. You're, you're you know, good in this moment. But I that understand doesn't mean anything that doesn't other extend, than extend. That, what it means is work harder to get through the finish line. Why do you think that there's still some people who are hubristic about beating Trump, who don't seem to take the, the threat seriously, who kind of still treat him like I, the it, joke that they treated him as in 2016? And I think that's always dangerous. Mm-hmm. People try to predict these things and be so sure and confident. There's work we can do. We have the power to make these decisions. So let's do it. Yeah. I I mean, psychologically, it feels to me like somehow it's, you know, people don't like Trump for obvious reasons. Yeah. And there's the kind of a lack of detachment between I don't want to credit him. Like, I don't want to compliment him. So I'm going to people basically pretend that he's beatable as a way to kind of put him down. He is beatable. Well, easily beatable. it's, it's, It's difficult when you have somebody as unpopular as him to say, Mm-hmm. They're not beatable. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, at the same time, while losing the popular vote, he did string together an electoral majority. And that's that's problematic. And nothing is guaranteed. And that's why we just got it like every we got to just keep going, yeah. going, 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 but going. But it's, it's not it's not somehow giving anything away or complimenting your enemy to to respect that they have the power to still no, to still win. do wrong and to win. Right. And I, I think that it's important. I, one of the things I really have always appreciated about Bernie Sanders when he talks about Trump is that he's very clear eyed about it. And, you know, earlier you you talked about the trips that he took after right. 2016. And and I remember specifically watching the debate that he did with Ted Cruz yeah. and how enormously effective he was, I think, because he wasn't so married to some of the scripts that I think come out of the establishment. And when Ted Cruz, you know, he's this Harvard debate guy and he gets up and he gives his opening salvo and he basically lays out some legitimate criticisms of the Affordable Care Act, including that premiums have gone up. And in this remarkable turn, Bernie Sanders says, you know what, I think I do agree with Ted on this one thing. Premiums are high. It's why we should have Medicare for all. Yes. <laughs> right. And when when people ask me, you know, why do you think Bernie is the best person to beat Trump? I can point to polls. We had some very good polls but today. I think you're onto something. Clarity is important. Bernie is one of the best message people I've ever encountered mm. because how Bernie messages is very straightforward. He tells you what he's going to do. What is our college fund? College for all. I'm just going to tell you. I don't need to have some like weird, over-tested name. No, Medicare for all. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. And those plans have popularity. Yeah. And speak simply, speak directly. He does not treat people like they're stupid. Mm. Everybody has value. It's it's interesting when we like arrive, let's say we arrive on a college campus for an event and we're waiting for him to go on. He's going to, he'll talk to the kitchen worker about what their life is like. And by the way, that sticks with him. There was a, we arrived I want to say there was an event. We arrived in, we were spending the night in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. The hotels, like the assistant manager of the hotel had greeted us and was bringing us up to his room. And he was like, so he was asking about her job and she was talking and she said, he asked if she voted in the last election. She said, yeah, but it took seven hours. Mm. And they engaged in a conversation. And by the way, 
He has carried that story, but he's told that story a bunch of times that he met somebody. It was because he, like, he talks to people, be it the hotel manager, the kitchen worker, the maid who's cleaning his room, the police officers who are who are on duty protecting him. He talks to them like real human beings. He wants to hear what they have to say, mm. and he cares about what they have to say. Mm. Hey, what do you think about this? How's your health care? Talk to me about your kid's education. Talk to me about your experience voting. And he lets... He's absorbing those stories all the time, and people never see that. I remember the first time that I met him, uh, I had told him in a conversation that I have a lot of student debt myself. And, you know, an hour later, he was on stage giving a speech, and he says, I just met a young woman who tells me that for the crime of going to law school, she has $180,000 worth of debt. You actually, (laughs) but let's talk about that day. It's me. Let's talk about that day for a second, because there's like an interesting moment that day, Mm -hmm. and I don't even know if you remember it. We had done an event in Memphis, and you were actually a reporter covering us, mm-hmm. and we were driving you to Jackson. Yes. And it was me, one other staffer, Bernie and you, in a, in a car together, mm-hmm. and he was like, let's go get barbecue, because mm-hmm. he liked, he formerly, we ate a lot of barbecue, <laughs> we've been got, gotten healthier since, right. and we went to this barbecue joint in downtown Memphis, and there was a group of. Do you remember there was yes. like a group of students sitting remember. at the table? I do remember. And they he literally just had a field trip. He just School walked trip. up and like sat down and was like, "Oh, talk to me about what's going on, guys." <laughs> That's right. And these students were kind of like, "Oh my god, did Bernie Sanders just sit down at our <laughs> table?" Shell but very interested. Like very like, interested. Gathered like, around. gathered around and he talked. Like then he, he went off and had lunch. He t- spent about fifteen minutes. Hey, tell me about what you think about college for all. Tell me about Truly having a, a real yeah, conversation session. with yeah. them. Because he walked into a restaurant, they were sitting there, and they seemed interested. Yeah. Yeah. And a similar, I feel like the similar conversation happened toward the end of our meal when a lot of the kitchen staff yes. came out and had another conversation. And that, that has happened, I think, consistently every time I've had the opportunity to travel travel yes. with the kitchen senator. staff. Like, he wants to hear from real people and yeah. loves people and loves, and he'll be like, oh, that person I met, they're really smart. Yeah. They said this, and I'm blown away by how smart that person was. Yeah. And it's not about what education you have or what your background is. Just, oh, that person said something real and smart to me, and I'm going to take that with me. Something that um, Crystal Ball said in a recent episode was that she remembers being told when she worked at MSNBC that people don't care about trade. There's no real point in talking about The audience doesn't care about trade. And I think the gap that you see, why the media doesn't predict certain things, um, why they can't anticipate or truly seem to understand why Bernie Sanders is so popular sometimes, is that when you're talking to a different subset of people, people whose lives are affected by trade policy, et cetera, you have a different perspective on things. The truth is that problem with the media is very clear. So there's local media, which let's put to the side, that's very different and is sadly in financial ruin mm-hmm. and is going away. And yeah. local media over here, but kind of elite media, meaning national press based in basically New York and DC. All of their friends tend to be upper middle class to wealthy, college educated, grad school educated people who don't care about trade, who trade doesn't affect their lives. So, oh, it doesn't matter. Nobody in my world talks about trade. They're talking about, you know, whatever issues happen in Park Slope. (laughs) Um, And there's nothing wrong with that. Like the issue, that's the thing. The issues, there are issues in Park Slope and it's important to talk about. But the problem is when your whole world is that and you don't see outside, and then when you're writing about the Midwest and you're doing it as like a complete outsider, that's when it gets weird. Yeah, absolutely. And that's when the, the... that's when people just can't understand Bernie because his relation is to people in the Midwest who have lost their jobs. They're the nurses, they're the teachers. That's who he talks to. Yeah, and that's who's predominantly supporting our campaign when you look yes. at the breakdown of donations, and it's something I'm enormously proud of. 
Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today, Ari. It's always such a treat to have you on. You're always welcome back. Yay. (laughs) And remember, on a journey with Bernie on Instagram. (laughs) That's right. You should follow him. Absolutely. That's it for this week. Once again, here's a quick reminder to check your local primary rules, which may require you to register or re-register before a certain date in order to participate in the upcoming election. Some states, like New York and Pennsylvania, hold closed primaries, which means you must register as a Democrat in order to vote in the Democratic primary. So check your local rules and make sure your voice is heard. Also, this is the last podcast you're going to hear before Iowa. If you live in Iowa, it goes without saying that you should be convening everybody you know in a room. I'm not saying lock it, but ensure they listen to this episode and all the episodes of Hear the Burn that you feel like influenced you to want to be a part of this progressive movement. Now is when all the calls matter, all the texting matters, all the door-to-door knocking. So if you've been saving it up for any special moment, that moment is here. Hear the Burn is produced by me, Brianna Joy Gray, Ben Dalton, and Christopher Moore. Let us know what you think at hearttheburn at berniesanders.com or else take to Twitter with the hashtag hearttheburn. I love to read your feedback on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get these episodes. So be sure to rate, review, or like us whenever you get the chance. Till next week.